Blog Talk Radio. This is the Sunbury Press Authors Interview. I'm Van Carter. No one thinks of American Bandstand without Dick Clark, the ageless wonder who hosted that record-breaking show across four decades. But an era was also formed, an era that author Larry Lamer calls Bandstandland, and that's the name of his book, How Dancing Teenagers Took Over America and Dick Clark Took Over Rock and Roll. It's just out on Sunbury Press, and Larry Lamer is here to share the long travail of putting this book together. Thanks for being here, Larry. Thank you, Van. You're an old newspaper man from the Des Moines Register and also have a book out about Buddy Holly. I'm guessing that may have come from his dying in a plane crash in Iowa. What got you started on Bandstand and Dick Clark, which began as a Philadelphia story? Yeah, it was right after uh, I finished the work on The Day the Music Died, the Buddy Holly, Big Bopper, Richie Valens book. I was looking for something to follow up, and I really wanted to do Alan Freed because of his role in rock and roll. And I was really, really, really locked in, I think, to that era. So um, I found out that there had actually been an Alan Freed book done not that long before by John Jackson. So I decided, well, the flip side of... Alan Freed was Dick Clark. Uh, they both went, went before the Paola hearings back in the late 59, early 60. Alan Freed lost his jobs. Dick Clark went on to a, a marvelous career after that. So I thought, well, Dick Clark would be good. All the books about Dick Clark up to that point had been done by Dick Clark. So I thought there's probably a story there that hasn't been told yet. So I went to Philadelphia. I took some of the advance money from the day the music died, went to Philadelphia. The first place I went was to Val Shively's record shop. And I told him what I was going to work on. And he said, well, how is this different from John Jackson's book? And I said, well, this is a book about Dick Clark, not about Alan Freed. He said, well, John Jackson has a book about Dick Clark <laughs> that's coming out too. So that was coming out just the same time as my book came out. And I thought, well, I might want to shift gears a little bit. But I was already in Philadelphia. And so I, I visited with Davy Freeze, who for years ran the American Bandstand Fan Club. In fact, he still does. And he, he publishes a Bandstand Boogie newsletter that keeps people up to date with whatever might be happening in the world of American Bandstand. So I went to Davy's house, and he told me a lot of great stories and showed me his Bandstand room where he had lots of memorabilia. And he was connected to a lot of the, the kids who had danced on the show. I call them kids. A lot of them now are in their late 70s or even 80s, but uh, to me, they're still kids. And he told me about a, a book project that Bunny Gibson was working on. And Bunny was one of the popular regulars in the early 60s. And she wanted to do a book, a behind-the-scenes book based on the dancers, the kids who were on the show. 
And she thought there was a lot there to tell. And she had titled her project uh, Behind the Smiles, which she thought was pretty relevant to the, the experiences of these kids. So I worked with Bunny for a while. And we, we were working on a book with that in mind. And she put me in touch with Pam Mamarella, whose dad, Tony Mamarella, was the producer of the show from the early years, clear through to the Paola, Paola hearings. Uh, really kind of held the show together for years and years. And so I, we were really rolling along, and I, I pitched the story project to an agent that I know, and she told me that the premise was too narrow. She didn't think she could sell that. She said, but if you do a book, if you broaden it out to tell kind of the history of the show and some of the things, not not associated directly with the dancers, that might that might work. So Bunny and I kind of went different ways, and she kept the, the regular stories. That, that's basically her project, and I think she's probably still working on it. And I went ahead and started interviewing people that were connected with the show. And that's, that's where I started with it, and you, you know where I ended up. Well, yeah, you're, you're, uh, this is actually uh, – I mean, you've, you've, come, you've turned out to be a, a historian for the era – uh, I, I guess uh, un- until you read this book, I guess we don't have a, a, a really full understanding of how much rock and roll uh, changed America, and how and and how much Philadelphia played a role in that. I had no, you know, you always think that whatever's first, it's going to be uh, out of New York. But, uh, I mean, the first ABC affiliate was in Philadelphia. A bandstand came out of, out of Philadelphia. Uh, uh, the, the, just a, an amazing amount of music and, and music labels and everything else. Everything was coming out of Philadelphia in the 50s, it seemed like. Yeah, they were in a good position. They had positioned themselves. They were one of the, one of the first TV stations in the country. And that was Walter Annenberg, who owned the radio franchise. He got a TV license and decided to rush it on the air. It went on the air in the 40s. I think it was 47 when they first hit the air. And they managed to get the Democratic and Republican National Political Conventions in Philadelphia for 48, where they could televise them. And because of their early start and their proximity to New York, New York relied on them a lot to provide programming. And uh, they did a lot of it. And in in the wisdom of Annenberg, he also bought the arena, which was the sports facility right next door to the studios. So they had access to hockey games, basketball games, concerts, anything that went on in the arena. It was easy for WFIL to, to cover it. Well, talk and and as I mentioned, the 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 hist- historical nature of this, the the deep history. Uh, I, I uh, as as an old newsman myself, I I'd heard about Walter Annenberg. I knew about Walter Annenberg, uh, but I did not know about the, uh, the the highly questionable past of his father, who started all of this too. Yeah, he started out, well, he was in the newspaper business in the early 20th century, and it was pretty rough business in those days. Yeah, cities like New York, I have no idea how many newspapers they had, but I'll bet they had 10 or 12 daily newspapers, and they were all fighting for subscribers, and they did it. You know, they beat up paper boys, and they, they did all kinds of things. So that's the well, People were murdered. 
Yeah. Right. That's that's the culture that Mo Annenberg came out of, and he started the racing form, which was a real popular racetracks, which horse racing was very big in the in the 20s, and and basically he was in a, a li- alliance with the bookies in the United States. He made made a fortune there. He ended up going to prison for for tax evasion, but yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, I don't know if I want to get to the payola stuff yet, but, but it, it just, it, the, the, well, see, rock, uh, this, this whole rock and roll scene just kind of uh, blew up in, in, uh, in, in the fifties. All of a sudden there's this new music coming out and, uh, and Dick Clark through, through, uh, good, good chance and his own preparation, uh, you know, ended up taking over this bandstand show, which already existed, was highly popular. And the fellow who was running it, Bob Horn, got himself into trouble. Clark steps in, and and it seems like for at least the next decade, uh, it turns out to be. Uh, well, let's see here. I've I've got a quote here somewhere. Uh, turns out to be. Oh, they say if Chubby Checker is king of twist. Then Dick Clark is prime minister. I mean, he was the guy who pretty much uh, dictated uh, where rock and roll was going for many years, didn't he? Yeah, he did, and and that that's in the title of the book how Dick Clark took over rock and roll, and he was very savvy in his in his business sense, and he he was vertically in, integrated in just about every part of the music business, from managing singers to pressing records to owning publishing. To you, you name it. They even carry record cases to carry records in. He was involved in that business. So, yeah, it, there there were a lot of things going on in the music business at that time, and Dick Clark caught on to it real quick. He sure did. I had no idea that Bandstand was, or the, uh, and then it became American Bandstand when when the network picked it up. I, I had no idea th- that it was such a a cult thing, as you just stated. There's still uh, somebody that, whose name I saw in the book, who you mentioned, is is still the the head of uh, of a bandstand fan club. Uh, the, oh, yeah. the regulars, the, these these kids that went on this show, it wasn't just a new mix every week. They were actually regulars, and and they themselves became celebrities and 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 got mail and had people hounding them for autographs and i i i didn't know any of that stuff yeah yeah if you were watch the show regularly like uh, millions of teenagers did at that time they seemed to recognize who the good dancers were and and fan clubs sprung up around the country some of these kids actually had as many as 200 fan clubs and every town, every big city around the country seemed to have, a, have a fan club for each one of those popular kids. They would get mail. Dick Clark would distribute the mail on the show. Uh, at one time, he had uh, he had bags of mail laid out on the dance floor just to show people how popular these people were. And, and Dick Clark used the mail a lot to promote the show. He did it with through through dance contests. I think he had one of his dance contests, you'd mail in a postcard, say, you're voting for this couple. He had as many as 800,000 entries in some of those wow. dance contests. So that was, and that these was kids. a way of him showing. Yeah, he'd show his bosses, look how popular we are. 
and these kids were sneaking out of school and they were they were riding buses and trolleys uh, uh, and trams just just to get there in, on time yeah there were kids coming in from out of town from wilmington um you know they 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 would come all from all over in fact they would actually hold after the show got established even even before dick clark took it over they would hold some spots in the studio for out of town guests where people could ride in and say we're going to bring a bus of kids in from reading or some place like that and they they'd hold some seats for them because they they had to limit the number of kids that could get in the studio it would only hold 200 250 kids uh, you know, that's 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 what I find interesting about you. You know, you go into the book thinking, okay, I'm going to I'm going to learn a little bit about a American Bandstand, which of course I did, and I'm going to learn more about Dick Clark, which of course I did. But I had no idea how much more uh, I was going to learn from your book. Uh, th- this is really the story of the coming out of American teens. That was that was one reason the show was so successful. There were so many of us. I mean, I was a teen in the 50s, and uh, that was the baby boom generation. And uh, America generally was fairly affluent after World War II. And uh, there was a big expansion of radio right after the war, and TV was just starting up. They had uh, stopped recording records during World War II to preserve shellac for the for the war effort, so there was not a lot of records being produced till after the war. There was a there was a war between the licensing organizations that, that enabled blues records and gospel records and and that sort of thing to proliferate. There were a lot of independent record labels coming along, so all of that converged just about the time that they launched Bandstand. And 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 uh, Dick Clark had a lot of savvy. He he actually was involved in in uh, uh, changing some tunes around before they came out. Uh, one of the one of the big hits of the time at the Hop. He's largely re- responsible for. He's he's also responsible for or behind uh, getting uh, uh, dances, certain dances, to become popular. Uh, the, the stroll, I think, was 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 the first one that I'm thinking of. But he was he was uh, behind the twist, wasn't he? He was behind Chubby Checker's version of the twist, and the song was actually done by Hank Ballard first. But Hank Ballard didn't have the most sterling reputation among the the bandstand fans. Uh, he had done songs like "Work with Me, Annie" and "Annie Had a Baby." He had done those kinds of songs, which were very popular, sold a lot of records, but those kinds of songs would never get him on bandstand. But when they found out there was a song called The Twist that was taken off, it was Hank Ballard's version that was taking off, and Dick Clark realized that if he could get a cleaned-up version of that, that he could make that song popular. And that led him to Chubby Checker, to them reworking the song note for note, it's it, uh, a carbon copy of Hank Ballard's version, but it's Chubby Checker singing it, and that made it a little more palatable to the to the brass at ABC and at, at WFIL. So once they got that on the air, the twist craze took off. It actually came back back a couple years later. So that song really really established the show. That that was at a critical time. That was right after the Paola hearings and that they needed something to kind of 
resurrect the show. Dick Clark was forced out of the music business, but he was still in television, and, and that song kind of saved him. Well, let's let's talk about the payola stuff uh, because I I uh, it didn't say explicitly in your book, but I got the definite impre- impression that uh, it was a it was a backlash sort of thing uh, because the the rock and roll industry was was just growing like a mushroom cloud. All of these record labels were were coming up. All of these songs were coming out. Uh, all of these hucksters or or uh, music men were were moving around with with the latest records and trying to get the myriad of DJs to play them on the radio. And and they were you know using incentives. And some of those incentives turned out to be actually hey I'll, you know for if, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you play my song uh, on the, on your radio etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Which, uh, in the end, somebody pointed out, isn't a heck of a lot different from what was going on in the halls of Congress and lobbying. But Congress decided that they were going to go after all of this. And I'm just wondering how much you think it, it was actually a, an anti-rock and roll movement as opposed to anything else. Oh, I think it, that's definitely what it was. And the... Um you know, payola was not illegal, and it had been going on for probably centuries. I mean, you go back to Gilbert and Sullivan in the 19th century, they used it to promote their plays. They would pay people to perform their songs. And, uh, you know, without that, some of their famous works would never be popular today. And it, it just has gone on forever. And they, everybody just kind of looked the other way. But when rock and roll came along, that was different for some reason, and it just seemed like you know the media w- was all under control of older people. It would be like people who were my parents' generation, who grew up in the big band era, and they just could not understand why young people were, were attracted to this music. There must be some kind of under-the-counter stuff going on. People must be being, being paid to pay this stuff to play it on, on the air. So there had to be a reason for it. And then the quiz show scandal hit. And when they found out that a couple of the key characters in the quiz show scandal also owned radio stations, they decided, well, you know, maybe this is our chance to go after this music that's plaguing the airwaves. So they just branched off, started looking into payola and they were, trying to come up with ways of making it illegal. So they, they started that, and uh, really a lot of disc jockeys lost their jobs uh, around the country, and uh, a lot of Philadelphia DJs were implicated in this. And they lost their jobs, and as you say, it wasn't illegal, so they lost their jobs basically on, what, morals charges? or? Yeah, it just was unseemly. To, to have somebody there who had taken $50 from a label for playing a record, uh, you know, every hour on the hour or whatever. And there were all kinds of arrangements being made. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of it was the radio stations were kind of being cut out of this. I it was going right to the, to the DJs. And once Top 40 radio came in, that kind of handcuffed these guys a little bit. They had playlists they had uh, had to do, and their ability to break out hits was diminished a little bit. And then you had somebody like Dick Clark, 
who had a nationwide TV show, was on TV five days a week. He had a Saturday night show. I mean, his his influence was immense compared to any of the individual DJs around the country. So naturally, he was going to be a target. Well, he actually got uh, some. Uh, uh, your 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 book indicated that that he was also though seen. What, what did it say? Uh, he was called the great tranquilizer of the era because he was so uh, uh, buttoned down and clean cut. Although he was pushing the rock and roll, uh, the rules that he had, and he had very strict rules for his show and the dancers and everybody. They had to dress a certain way and they had to behave a certain way. And and because of that, a lot of people uh, seem to claim that, that you know, he – he eased rock and roll into the mainstream uh, a lot easier than it might have happened otherwise. Yeah, I think that Dick Clark realized early on, once he kind of fell into the show, that uh, he was walking a fine line. He had to make the music palatable, not only to the kids that were dancing on the show and the kids that were watching it, but to their parents as well. So he, he, kept a close watch on the kids that were actually in the studio that were, that were going out over the airway. He tried to control that as best he could, which is not easy when you consider that a lot of these kids were from high schools. They just dropped in. There were three high schools within half a mile of the bandstand studios. And that's where a lot of these, a lot of these regular kids came from and they were high school kids. So they, they, they did all the things that high school kids did. So he had he had his hands full just controlling things in the studio. But he also had to be careful about the music he was playing because a lot of the music that was popular out there wasn't music that Dick Clark, that the parents of those kids would like to hear. So And Dick Clark himself was basically from the big band era. He was not immersed in the rock and roll. He wasn't in it for the music. He was in it for the business. And uh, Yeah, would, I, I, one uh, of the... One of the quotes you had I found interesting. Uh, they said that when Clark first started out, it was he didn't know Chuck Berry from a Huckleberry. <laughs> well, that's right. And he relied, there were a lot of good disc jockeys in the Philadelphia radio, and they, they kind of helped him, you know, steer acts his way and let him know what music was going on. And Tony Mamarella had a big part in this. He, he understood the music a little more, and he certainly understood the show a little better because he had been with it from the beginning. You know, and and they had uh, Jerry Blavitt, who was a popular disc jockey in the Philadelphia area, still popular in the Philadelphia area. He uh, he helped Bob Horn, the original host, pick music when rock and roll first came in. Uh, a lot of people were steering steering Bob Horn to play the, I would call it the big band kind of music, and and Jerry Blavitt was saying, no, 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 this is the this is the version of that song that the teenagers want to hear. And so they would listen to him, and they would—they got a little more hip with the music they were playing. Well, at that point in time, wasn't Jerry Blavitt just one of the kids, a regular himself? Yeah, I guess he was a heck of a dancer. I think he won just about every dance contest he was in. And Bob Horn said, "Look, you can't—we can't have you win every dance contest, so you can't enter him anymore. But you can help me. You can help me pick songs and and do things that improve the program." So they kind of took him on. They. He was a paid employee for a while. Some of the uh, some of the little details that that I I found fascinating uh, uh, were uh, uh, I did not know that Johnny Carson 
used to do a TV show called Do You Trust Your Wife? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, I was talking to some friends about that uh, just earlier this week, and they hadn't heard that either. But it was really interesting how ABC actually split bandstand. They they would have a portion of bandstand, then they would have the Johnny Carson show, and then they would come back with more bandstand after that. And it really was a rift between Johnny Carson and Dick Clark that carried on throughout their careers. I was also fascinated by some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, people that that whose careers uh, uh, are because of Dick Clark. There was a young lady named Concetta Franconera who apparently uh, was was torn between going into medicine or doing music, and she had some recording session or something. And and I, before this, uh, with just a few minutes left in the recording session, she uh, she recorded a, a song that her dad had done years and years before that she knew of, called "Who's Sorry Now," and. And uh, uh, Clark ended up using it on bandstand, and Connie Francis became a star. Yeah, that was real interesting because the promotion man had dropped off the record at the bandstand studios, and it sat on sat on Dick Clark's desk for a long time before he ever even saw it. And it, I think it was a matter of months before he actually picked it up and said, well, I think we'll put this on the show. By that time, Connie Francis had been let go of her contract, she MGM had let her go, and I'm sure she was thinking, well, maybe I'll go to medical school now. And uh, then the song became popular. Her career was revived. MGM quickly stepped in and re-signed her to a contract, and she had a great career. And a couple of other things, uh, uh, like Joe Pesci. You mentioned he was a uh, – I don't even know how you find these things out. Was an uncredited dancer during the, what, the Peppermint Twist thing or something? Right. That was an interesting uh, sideline that I, I found out about all the twist movies. They were fighting to see who could come out with the first twist movie. There were like four movies in the works at the same time. And uh, in one of them that was actually taped at the Peppermint Lounge, Joe Pesci was actually in the movie, but he's he's uncredited. He's just one of the dancers. And, and it sounds like uh, Fabian, we've all heard of Fabian. It sounds like uh, he was a total creation just because he was a good-looking kid. Yeah, they actually made a movie about that. I think they, it was a fictionalized version called The Idol Maker, which was about uh, a promoter taking kids off of the street and making them into stars. And that's pretty much what happened with Fabian. But he turned out to have a, a probably a better movie career than he did as a singer. <laughs> well, uh uh, b- before we before we get done with all of this, we we need to talk about the uh, the all white nature of bandstand. Uh, Dick Clark, in later years, claimed that he had been a pioneer and that he had made sure that his shows were fully integrated because Philadelphia had a had a large black population and. And uh, he claimed that they they took great pains to make sure that the show was integrated. But uh, a study of the situation finds that to be completely false. 
Yes, that's true. Um, there were rules put in place by Bob Horn that actually limited blacks initially, and, and Dick Clark carried those rules forward when he took over the show, and he kept them in place pretty much during the whole Philadelphia run. When he got to California, that changed, and I, I don't think it's because Dick Clark had any animosity towards black people. I think it was purely a business decision. And a lot of that, a lot of that good information about that came from a manuscript that Tony Mamorella wrote. And after he left Bandstand, and he left during the Paola years, he decided to stay in the record business instead of go, uh, staying in TV, and which was the choice he he was offered. And he actually presented the first gold record to the Beatles uh, because he was one of the owners of the Swan Records. But Tony, yeah. Ma- Tony Mamorella had started writing a book. He died in the 70s. But before he died, he had started writing a book entitled Bandstand Off My Back. So the, the title gives you an idea of what, what the book was all about. Uh, but the Mamorella family was kind enough to let me use portions of that. And, and part of that was about the rules to keep the black people off the show. Yeah. And and uh, uh, and Clark himself was an absolute uh, uh, control freak, and uh, and as as you pointed out, he was more interested in the money, really, than he was in the teenagers. Uh, 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 there's a quote. I don't I don't remember who he was uh, being interviewed by, but I have a quote here that came out of the book, and this is Dick Clark saying, "I am an absolutely pure, unadulterated whore." I will do anything for a buck. Yeah, I think that probably came from the the Rolling Stone. They did a couple of really good uh, interviews with him, and he was not he was not bashful about talking about about his, his likes. I mean, he had the show. I, I don't remember what the first show was about bloopers, and he. he he ended up with six or seven different blooper-related shows that were just silly stuff, and, and he called them. He said, well, yeah, they're fluff. He said, but people watched them, and that's what I did. He said, I've been a fluffmeister for many years, and he was just giving people what they wanted is what, what he figured, and that was his calling in life, and I think he, he was very good at it. Huh. Well, Larry, I appreciate you sharing some time with us. Your book, even though it's Fairly substantial is a quick and easy read. It's it's just darned interesting. Good luck with it. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Larry Lamer is a retired longtime newspaperman. This is his second book about the rock and roll music scene. I've not yet read his uh, first about Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper, but after reading this one, i got to find it. You can find this book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, and booksellers everywhere. Bandstand Land, how dancing teenagers took over America and Dick Clark took over rock and roll by author Larry Labor. This has been the author's interview from Sunbury Park.